Coming up on the Men at the Movies podcast, we discuss the episode Why We Fight in our Band of Brothers series. We deal with the ongoing toll of battle and suffering. The temptation is to allow the struggle to cause us to fall away, hate each other, and for our love to grow cold. But when Jacob wrestled with God, he knew dawn was coming. And although he walked away with a limp, he also had a blessing and a new name. Join us as we discover God's truth in this story. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story, the story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. Welcome to the Men at the Movies podcast. My name is Paul McDonald, and rejoining us after uh, he's gone through his own baston, breaking point, and the last patrol. So coming back to join us to enter into why we fight is Whaler Giles. Hey, Whaler, how you doing today, man? Hey, buddy. Always fun to hang out with you. Easy company. Whatever episode <laughs> we're doing. So your grandfather had been in World War II. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't mention that the first time <laughs> when we were talking about all this Band of Brothers stuff episodes ago. But yeah, my my maternal grandfather, Grampy, actually landed in Normandy. He was part of the the whole D-Day nastiness. He was a, an AA gunner in France for the duration of his time of war. And there's a harrowing story of him earning a Purple Heart in pretty grisly fashion. That's mm. sweet. As we talked about earlier, it's called wounded. Injured's what happens when you fall out of a tree. So he got wounded. He did. He got wounded and yeah. it stayed with him for the rest of his life. I mean, literally the rest of his life, mm. he he had shrapnel that would continue to emit from his body at random over the years. <laughs> That's a lot of shrapnel. Yeah. I'm I'm sure there was painful stretches that he didn't talk about, but he also just he had a way of making it funny. He was he was a, a court stenographer in his his post military career and and retired as a court stenographer. Prodigious vocabulary, absolutely brilliant man. But he would be sitting in his study and just feel a little itch in the bottom of his pants and reach down and sure enough there'd be something the size of a BB that had just taken forty years to work its <laughs> way down and out. I feel like even that we could uh, we could use as an episode of some some injuries are so deep it takes forty years to actually work through and be healed from. Oh yeah, not to extrapolate too deeply on that one. Well, <laughs> it's a metaphor that is so resonant. I actually don't want to embrace it. I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the size of life. That's how it is. So we are the the penultimate episode here, episode nine. Why we fight. Um. This is what I consider sort of the the third of this little mini arc for, with including Breaking Point, Last Patrol, and now Why We Fight. I've talked with Britt. I've talked with um, Andreas. And now Whaler and I were, were kind of wrapping the bow on this before Conrad and I wrap a bow on the series next week. And this is a very rich, there's a lot of stuff going on, just like we say about every episode. It's a heavy episode. Like I said, this three, really three episode arc is super heavy. Lots to deal with. Not nearly as enjoyable a watch as Crossroads was. Because we're watching these guys now struggling. Struggling with the, the, the weight of war, of, of the burden of war. And it's funny because I, I had even somebody at the, around my fire last night sort of bring up this idea of is our life just sort of going to be suffering from now on <laughs> like what's the point like we don't read a lot about suffering in the bible directly like how do the disciples suffer after jesus leaves you know we see jesus suffer we sort of know 
pretty sure just about all the disciples sort of lived or died a martyr's death. We know Paul's travels, travails, but other we don't really know much about the other guys. You know, Mary and Martha suffered when Lazarus died. And in some respects, the people that Jesus offered miracles to, they've suffered in some cases their whole lives. And this is what we see. We're, we're sort of going to look at three, three of the men here before focusing on sort of the big, the big reveal near the end of the episode um, where they find the, the Jewish concentration camp. And we're going to talk about Nixon. We're going to visit our boy Webster and also Perkani as they are dealing with the struggles of the ongoing battle. Why are we here? It's been so long since we're, we've been home. Their, their internal life is a wreck. And they, in many ways, are not, be they are becoming the anti heroes. And it reminded me of, this verse in Matthew 24 where Jesus is talking about the end times and he says, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and the love of many will grow cold. And there's a Barno study that says in the last 20 years, 50% of Christians have no longer claimed to be Christian. There's a falling away. There is a loss of what moved them in the first place. Their love will grow cold. Not a lot of love we see in the world today. And so when we look at that, those verses and apply it to this, we're going to say, hey, we are going to reach this point. There's no shortcut around this step of our masculine initiation. And so they we're going to talk about what do we do? What happens? I think in a lot of ways, God intervenes at our darkest hour. You know, to me, the idea of Jacob comes to mind of Jacob wrestled with God. He's going to walk away marked. He's going to walk away with a limp, wounded permanently because of the fight he struggled with over the night, the struggle he faced over, throughout the night. But dawn's going to come. And so what is it that's going to bring the dawn, that's going to bring the identity, that's going to warm up the love? So, you know, one of our typical super fun conversations here, Whaler. <laughs> you know how we do. <laughs> and we're going to kick off this conversation. They're, they're, they are now in Germany, a long way from Bastogne. A naked girl pops up for the first time in the series. So be aware of that uh, as you're going in. Also, some of the clips we're going to play have a lot of cursing. So just a heads up for that. If you're listening to this, this is really, I don't believe this is a conversation that would be shared with young ears. This is, this is episode nine. We are well into our masculine initiation. And so we can handle some of the, the deep shit that gets thrown at us uh, because it will in order to grow, in order to become good soil, in order to bear fruit, got to have a lot of manure, mm -hmm. got to have a lot of, of, of organic material, as, uh, as it might be called. Thank you for remembering the disclaimer on the, <laughs> uh, the scandalous gratuity episode or scene. My boss, man, like it, it might be a fireable offense if I didn't disavow <laughs> that scene. Basically, you're supporting a scene <laughs> that, has, that shows them having sex. Yeah, yeah. I, I disavow that. I do not acknowledge the propriety of that scene. <laughs> so we're going to start our conversation with uh, the this clip, and it's Nixon and Winters. And Nixon has just gone for a drop. Uh, Winters is jealous because he's like, he's still sort of stuck in, in the regiment level stuff. So he's he's asking Nixon, how does the drop? You get to fight. You get this award because you've done three combat jumps. And Nixon, we see in Nixon a man who is losing heart, uh, losing the will to fight. And not to harp on the, the name of the episode, but he's, he's wondering, 
just like the three men we're going to talk about. Why are we fighting? Why are we continuing to battle? What is it all for? Dog. Making combat jumps with the 17th time in supply briefings all morning. Yeah, lucky me. No, congratulations. You're probably the only man in the 101st with three combat stars over his jump wings. Not bad for someone who's never fired his weapon in combat, huh? Really? Really? You've never? Nope. Hmm. Not even with all the action we've seen? Not around. So, uh... How'd it go this morning, the jump? It was great. Fantastic. Took a direct hit over the drop zone. I got out, two others got out. The rest of the boys? Oh, they blew up over Germany somewhere. Boom. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. About what? Well, tough situation. Oh, yeah, the boys, yeah, it's terrible. Oh, well, it wasn't me. You know, the real tragedy is they also lost their CO, so... Guess who gets to write all the letters home? God, I got my nightmare. Got a visit from Colonel Sig this morning. Howie's the good colonel. Concerned? Still drinking nothing but the Bat 69, huh? Well, the finest for Mrs. Nixon's baby boy. Had a problem up in regiment? What, this? Is that what he said? No. I just don't like it up there. Good. She'll be happy to hear that Sink is transferring you back down to Battalion S3. What do you think I should write to these parents, Dick? Hear what I said, Nix? You've been demoted. Yeah, demoted, got you. Because I don't know how to tell them their kids never even made it out of the goddamn plane. You tell them what you always tell them. Our sons died as heroes. You really still believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Don't you? Their sons died as heroes. Don't you believe that? Because there comes a time in our, in our initiation, in our lives, where if you talk about the, the love of many grows cold, he's so jaded and worn out with the fight that he's been in that he's kind of more concerned. You know, he's very, he's very flippant about the loss of an entire plane of soldiers. And so we we get to that jaded place where he's checked out, right? He's drinking quite heavily these days. He's breaking into a liquor store because he runs out of his favorite alcoholic beverage. And there's a lot of ways that we can check out when we're going through that time where we're tired of suffering, tired of seeing others suffer. It could be, you know, alcohol in this case. It could be other recreational drugs. It could be porn. It could be work. It could be sports. It could be betting. Anything to alleviate the ache in your heart and on your soul. To try to alleviate the burden. I mean, he even focuses on what he hasn't done. I haven't even fired my weapon. Not bad for a guy who never fired his weapon, right? He's diminishing what he's done by, by looking at what he hasn't done. And which one of us hasn't done that? I've mentioned a few times how I wrote in my journal last year about all I see is all I haven't done. So, Whaler, when you, when you listen to Nixon as Winters begins tuning into his friend's heart and kind of the sad state that it's in, what strikes you? Uh, at, at first, it just hurts. 
you can't help but feel the astounding weight of grief. How difficult it would be to have a day like that and continue on with no end in sight. They have to continue doing days like this. And when it seems like the war is over, they get caught up in bureaucratic nonsense. Things have a way of just kind of continuing to trickle. I don't think Nixon means half of what he says in that scene. You know, he, when he's in a good mood, his humor is is sarcastic. He's he's witty in his sarcasm. Right. You know, it's more than just rote. Oh yeah, I mean the opposite of what I say. You know, he's he's got witty ways of turning the corner and arresting your attention. It's his way of deflecting. Exactly that. You know, now we're seeing him on the dark side of that giftedness where it hurts like hell. And he I don't think he's flippant nearly as much as as he's grieving, but also not really knowing how to grieve well. And it's it's like a self-criticism, you know? Oh well, at least it wasn't me. Like he's he's feeling guilty even over that sense of relief. And there's no box right. he's ever been given in life. Where do you put the pain of losing 20 men that you were responsible for? He has no compartment to put that in. And then to compound that with the responsibility of, oh, yeah, you also have to console their families. You have to give them some meaning. He doesn't have it for himself. How is he going to give it to anybody else? Mm. So much so he doesn't even care about the demotion, right? <laughs> right. And there's there's a place yeah. where for as as messy as he looks in the scene, I think that's actually a virtue on display of everything going on. He doesn't care at all about being demoted. Well, he doesn't care about the battle anymore. He's I mean, in, even in the last episode, the, the name was the last patrol. Where they lost one guy in the patrol and, and were dealing with it to the point where they just sort of uh, pencil whipped the, the future patrols didn't actually do it because the, the tide had turned in the war after the Battle of the Bulge. You, know, you could say the breaking point was actually the breaking point of Germany and the Allied forces were advancing. But even in the advance, soldiers were still dying. Germany was going to lose. As you mentioned, like we are suffering. He is there suffering. He's seeing men die in a war that should be over, in a war that he has no idea when it'll be over, if it'll be over. Like that idea, like, can't remember what it was, but it's like, if you tell me how long I've got to run or, you know, how long I have to do something, if I know the end point, I can pace myself I can manage it out if you just say run and I'll let you know when to stop mm. mm-hmm. that just feels interminable yeah yeah that's a good read on that the the unaccounted mile could feel an awful lot longer than the known 10 miler that's and I think when you're going someplace new sometimes it feels like it takes forever to get there but then when you're driving back, it feels very fast because when you're driving there, it's unknown. You're like, I'm not sure how far it is. I don't know where it is. When you're driving back, you've now done it before. So you have some some sense of of timing and you're like, ah, like I can't be the only one that happens to. <laughs> uh, I just I thought it was just because it was it was downhill on the return trip. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's it's our grandfather's and then it was uphill both ways every time. <laughs> yep. And you see in in Nixon mm. that struggle you know we talked about in uh, Bastogne where the men just wanted somebody to give a shit and Nixon has lost the ability to give a shit uh, the love of many will grow cold and we need to we need to figure out what it will take to shift that mentality. But we're not going to do that yet. We're going to, because I want to dive into Perkani. Now, when you, when you, again, zoom out, look at the, the amount of time these men have been gone. They spent, I think, two years in Tekoa. They spent two years training to become paratroopers. That's before they got to uh, 
Normandy. That's before they got to World War II. They even entered the fight. They've been gone a really long time. And he takes his suffering differently. He's, he becomes checked out. He doesn't want to care. He and uh, O'Keefe, this new guy, this replacement are coming in. They're going to a, to a guard post. For the for the new guy, he's he's all full of piss and vinegar. He he wants to jump into Germany. He wants to, you know, he's checking his gun and aiming down the road. And to somebody like Perkani, it really grates. And so as we listen to this, I want to see how is it that we can relate to Perkani again in this idea. I think for him more, it's the the falling away it's not we see with nixon the love has grown cold here it's many will fall away and hate one another hallelujah about time yeah well consider yourself lucky nixon was given another common events lecture so tell me nothing's happening nothing's happening a couple of artillery rounds at dawn probably from across the river but that's about it it's boobtashy though <laughs> Yeah, Rocco just finished it. Oh, yeah? Any sex in it? Ain't that kind of book. Hold it. Hold See ya. Yeah. See ya. Okay, move on. AMG. Hey, O'Brien, relax, would you? I'm trying to read. O'Keefe. Is that right? Yep. Patrick O'Keefe. My friends call me Patty. Hey, O'Brien. Shut up. I told you it's O'Keefe. You know why no one remembers your name? It's because no one wants to remember your name. There's too many Smiths, D'Amato's, and O'Keefe's, and O'Brien's who show up here replacing Tokoa men. That you dumb replacements got killed in the first place. And they're all like you. They're all piss and vinegar. Where the crowd's at? Let me at them. When do I get to jump into Berlin? Two days later, there they are. With their blood and guts hanging out. And they're screaming for a medic. Begging for their goddamn mother. Dumb fucks, I don't even know they're dead yet. Hey, you listening to me? Do you understand that this is the best part of fucking war I've seen? I got hot chow, hot showers, warm bed. Germany is almost as good as being home. I even got to wipe my ass real toilet paper today. So quit asking about when you're going to see some action, will you? And stop with the fucking love songs. When you ship out? A few weeks ago? Yeah. It's been two years since I seen home. Two years. It's fucking war. He's tired of fighting, man. That line at the end really caught me. It's been two years since I've been home. There's guys on here. There are guys maybe listening. It's been two years since I've seen my kids. It's been two years since I got a divorce. It's been two years since I've been looking for work. It's been two years with this illness, with this cancer, with this whatever. I'm just sick of it. All I want is, all I want is some paper to wipe my ass with. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and very similar to that first clip, you're, you kind of look at him like a jerk early in the clip. And then at the end, you see that all his anger is coming from his, the suffering that he's experienced over those two years. Did you know that that actor was one of the lost boys in hook? It was <laughs> now that you say it, I like, yes, <laughs> you see it. It's, 
a little uh, admittedly a little strange but it makes for a fun bit of play if you pretend for a second that hook and bandon brothers are part of the same cinematic universe <laughs> as i understand it the lost boys in every peter pan mythology whatever the rendering they are that because they have never they've never grown up they're they're boys that have refused the fullness of masculinity and have stayed in the realm of eternal play where mm. they don't ever become responsible for a woman's heart or a child's well-being. Uh, Peter Pan himself, you know, he's the the greatest miscreant of never entering an adult's world. And so Picante, if we can imagine, he's the same kid. We see him doing the same thing. He did enter the fight for a time. And then once he felt like he was trapped in it, and no longer had volition. Well, the only the only exercise of will that he will give is checking out and doing just whatever he can to endure the time. So much so that here's a yeah, he's a little bit uppity, but he's got a soldier that he can take care of. And instead, he doesn't care about him at all. Mm -hmm. And it's so different from the way that we would see. Uh, oh, come on. The episode bull. Yeah. Right. And replace you see bull just taking care of you know, in, in these quick little one liners, you know, like don't hang your rifle like that, you know, and every time he's passing a guy, he's just quick little he's nudging him, doing everything he can to make sure that they get through that day and then he's going to do yeah. it again the next day, you know, just indefatigable in the care that he gave to his soldiers. Picane doesn't have a measure of that. Right. Just get me through this book. Get me through this duty rotation. Get me back to the shower. He's done. Because anything's work, anything's better than being in Bastogne again. Mm. Like we got meals, uh, you know. There's no snow on the ground. Everybody, the the line that uh, Spears says is the war isn't about fighting anymore; it's about who gets what. And so that it, that's his mindset. That's Perkani's mindset. Is I just want to read a book. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to put up with the shit anymore. Just shut up. And leave me alone and let me enjoy this little slice that I can, I've, I've found. Many will fall away and hate each other. Like he hates O'Keefe because he's been home more recently than he has. It's like, I haven't been home in two years. You just left a couple of weeks ago. It's like when I was freezing my ass off in Bastogne, you were there. You're still in boot camp, probably. This is a super downer of an episode, but, but we do have to reckon with this because if we just say life with God is awesome and everything's going to be great, I know I'm following God with, with a sense of peace and joy and all these things are growing. Well, it, it, we are partnering with God in our initiation and we could either fight him on it and say, Hey, I don't want to grow anymore. This sucks. I don't want to, because Life isn't going to get easier. When you look at the apostles and the early Christians, you know, the Bible doesn't reflect, again, outside of Paul, a lot of their travails that they had, but they all died a martyr's death. If I remember correctly, Peter died on an upside down cross. Stephen was stoned to death. And then you've got the, the Roman Colosseum where you've got the lions and burned at the stake and Nero using the Christian believers as torches. And there's a way that we keep from turning into martyrs, which I think is what we see with Webster. And in this scene, what's happening is all these thousands of Germans have surrendered. They're driving past, they're driving, the, the Germans are marching out of Germany, they're driving into Germany, and Webster sort of takes this moment to ridicule, criticize, and uh, react to the whole purpose of them being there. Hey, you! That's right! You stupid crap bastards! That's right! Say hello to Ford and General fucking Motors! You stupid fascist pigs! Look at you! You have horses! What were you thinking? That's enough, Webster. Give it a rest. 
Dragging our asses halfway around the world. Interrupting our lives for what? You ignorant, servile scum! What the fuck are we doing here? Huh? I know he's, uh... He's using a lot of foul language there, but I also can't help but admire that English major's vocabulary on display. He is really angry and he's still very eloquent. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I get that way when I'm angry. (laughs) Like my IQ drops if I'm trying to be loquacious while I'm a little hot. (laughs) Yeah, and it's such a foil, man. I mean, that's the same scene where when Winters observes them, the thing that he takes note of is even in surrender, they they march proudly. And then we've got Webb just just incensed. Both observations are legitimate. You know, you don't want to discredit Webster's feeling of what are we actually doing here? Why did we waste so much time and human life and potential? And yet, while I think winners would observe the same things, he, it's also not lost on him that there is a human spark, even in these Germans. And he, he still admires the strength of their humanity. Probably has some kind of a wrestling match to work out. The, the tension of like all the legitimate questions that Webster is asking, but not letting that be the end of the matter. Right. There, there is more. There's an ellipses. Maybe you don't come to the answer fast, but there is a, a better resolve than just you ignorant, servile, insert all the expletives here. Right. That question he asks in his eloquent way. What the fuck are we doing here? Hmm. I've had those moments. Sometimes I end up in a place because I put myself in that position. By uh, foolish decisions that has have consequences. When I'm worried about my children and how I've harmed them through the fact that I divorced their mother. Remember, there were days in in my uh, the house I was renting where I would collapse on the stairs crying because I missed my kids so bad. And that I, what, the, what the fuck am I doing here? There's times that it's not. I've shared about my friend with pancreatic cancer. And he he was a missionary to Peru for years. Followed the Lord. We joked about it uh, sort of early in the diagnosis of, he's like, well, I just have to sort of double down on my faith. It'd be a stupid time to kind of bail on it now. <laughs> When he's facing his own mortality and death, he's like, I, I kind of put all my cards in this 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 one hand. Um, I'm not gonna back away now. Mm. Even today, there was a, a journal entry that his wife shared, and over the over the months since the diagnosis, and she's like, "There's been tears, and there's been many more tears." I love what you said in our pre pre work there, Whaler, where you said, uh, I cried, uh, what was it, crying my face off? Something like that. Something even like bigger than that. Cried my face off of my face. <laughs> cried my face off of my face. <laughs> because there's moments where all of us are going to say, what the fuck am I doing here? I mean, that's sort of what Mary Martha asked him when he showed up, or it was more like, why weren't you here? Mm. It's Job. But he's like, what have I done to deserve this? Peter didn't really ask it. He just said, I'm out of here. <laughs> In that moment of crisis. Mm. When everything goes sideways. Because it can, we can go months and feel like things are working out well. And then things get sideways. And it could be something simple as your printer all of a sudden doesn't work or your Wi-Fi doesn't work. <laughs> Sounds really small. 
But those things take up hours of your time to try to fix it when you already feel overwhelmed, when you feel alone, when you don't understand, when everything in your world is chaos and there seems to be no way out. You look at my garage and my laundry room. It is not getting cleaner. It is getting more chaotic and it drives me crazy because I feel like there's no way out. And again, low-level stuff, but it adds up. It's cumulative. Because if I can't keep my laundry room clean, how am I going to interact with my son when he's struggling with alcohol? How am I going to interact when my kids get pregnant or get a girl pregnant? How am I going to do that? If I can't even keep my garage in order, what hope do I have? Why do I fight? Why? What the fuck am I doing here? I'm just going to go play video games. I'm going to lose myself in some booze, maybe some porn after the wife goes to bed. Anything to make me feel better. Because I feel like a failure. And I don't know when it's going to end. Man, it's interesting taking the, the pace of this episode and then remembering where the soldiers were not that much longer ago. If we're just working our way through the series, right? Webster wasn't there for Bastogne. And you remember just how ardently devoted those men were to each other because the significance was only that they were not going to abandon each other in the worst trial. That was enough meaning for them to endure. And so here we are where they're in a remarkably better situation in that they actually have some luxuries. You know, they got some amenities, they've got real toilet paper, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not until he says that, that you start to think, yeah, I guess I am really lucky to have, you know, on-demand toilet paper pretty much every day of my life, you know, (laughs) dentistry, right? Like there's so many things we get that would position us as kings if we're looking at most of the history of the world, how good we have it. Right. But here they are in an easier set of circumstances. And it's that's not the problem. The problem is that it's lost its significance. There's there's no meaning anymore to what they're suffering. They've lost the vision of why do we fight? Yes. Yeah. You you have to have an answer to that question in order to just get up and do the day with any kind of acumen. I I don't know about the woman's art. I I know as men, we will willingly suffer a great deal. So long as we know the significance of that pain, the instant we don't have that and it is meaningless, vapid hurt. I think that's the thing we contend against the most Mm. to, to hurt without there being any points to it. Futility, right? I think men would, would, would be willing to be the obscure hero. It's like, all right, maybe I don't ever get the medal. My name's not in the newspaper. I don't go viral on YouTube. You know, we can, we can handle obscurity. What we cannot accept is futility. Which is, of course, going all the way back to the curse, you know? From now on, the ground gives way to thorns and thistles before us. If I'm being honest, I feel both voices equally, equally loud in me. It, it's like there's a Webster and a Winters inside of me. Half of me would look at the stars and just, golly, I, I, I get absolutely enamored by constellations beauty that I see in my kids, you know, or my wife, there's so many things where I I go eclipses. We've got an eclipse coming up in (laughs) April again. I, man, the one, six years ago, golly, do I love eclipses? It's astounding that we live in a place that not only is habitable that we get to exist, but that our solar system is so fine-tuned that we get to have lunar and solar eclipses with perfect precision. I see that and I just go, 
absolutely I believe in God. There's no way that was an intergalactic dice roll. <laughs> absolutely not. There's no explosion that ever ends up that pretty. And on the other half of me, I am Webster screaming my face off at a God that doesn't seem to care how much everything hurts. And when I've needed you the most, that seems like when you are the most absent. And I really don't like the array of Bible verses that we have to the contrary. Like, no, thank you. I don't want to know what it means to count it all joy, my brethren, when I fall into various (laughs) trials, knowing that the testing of my faith produces patience. That sounds like a stupid class. I do not want to sign up for it. Can I exempt that one, please? Yeah. Yeah. I'll take a W on the record there. (laughs) Withdraw. (laughs) Yep. Hard pass. I'm with you in, in not wanting to put put a, a shimmering veneer over top of I don't even know what to call the thing. It's it's abhorrent, it's detestable. The the ugly underbelly of the human existence. Uh, it it's hmm. it's like instead of looking up and seeing the glory of constellations. We're seeing the underside of God's tapestry, and it's not pretty. That's not the side that you present when you're all done. Right. And I do not feel like praising him when that's the vantage point that I'm given. You brought up the question, why do we fight? Why do we persevere? Why do we hold on? Because if you're, if you're struggling through it, if you're going through a struggle and just sort of vapidly saying, well, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. You're going to miss the mark. Your, 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 your heart's going to get taken out. You're going to fall away. If it's based on a a logical theological structure, same thing, man, it's going to fall away. (laughs) Cause I can, (laughs) I know being going through my trauma and wounding and alone Knowing all the Bible that I know, all the theology that I know, all this stuff. I went to a Christian high school, went to a Christian college. I know the Bible pretty well. That didn't keep me from seeking validation elsewhere. That didn't stop me from divorcing my wife. That didn't stop me from making mistakes and suffering the consequences. But what do we do when that happens? What do we do? When we get the report, when we get the phone call, when we get the diagnosis, when we just don't feel like it'll ever end, why do we fight? Because if it's based on something vaporous, you you bring out the the vocabulary in me, Whaler. (laughs) If it's all pie in the sky stuff, It's not going to last. There's nothing to put your anchor in. Like you can't put anchor. If you toss an anchor out into the sea, sand's not going to hold it. Water's not going to hold it. You've got to find a rock. I love how you brought up the, the, the fall in Genesis three about thorns and thistles. Now imagine Jesus going to the cross I, I, you know, he curses the fig tree and somebody was asking, I was like, well, maybe he just got pissed because that reminded him of Adam and Eve sewing the fig leaves together to hide him. And it just reminded him of his entire purpose of being there. And it just pissed him off. (laughs) And he's got the thorns. (laughs) He's like, son of a bitch. I cursed you guys with this and now you're jamming it on my head. Oh, man. And what was it? He said. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And how do we endure? It can't be based on theology. It can't be based on our hopes, our dreams, our own efforts, our own skill, will, and ability. I was looking up the verse where it talks about we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. And obviously the rock is Jesus there. Jesus has already done the work. But earlier in the chapter, he says, dear friends, even though we are talking this way, he's talking about people who have fallen away. 
from God. We don't really believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. Because so many times, like the gospel isn't just Jesus wiped away our sins and now we get to go to heaven when we die. The gospel is freedom now. And we're going to talk about that as we pivot to the concentration camp. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. And to me, this takes us to the moment that really sets this episode apart where they discover the, the Jewish concentration camp. And they begin to see the horrors of the Holocaust. And honestly, it makes Bastogne look like a vacation. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have showed your love to him by caring for mm -hmm. other believers. Why do they fight? Because it's not because we hate Germany. If you're the allies, right? It's not because you're obligated to. It's not because you, I'm going to get a GI Bill on the other side. We fight because we need to. There's people who need us to fight. Like if they don't endure Bastogne, they don't get to the camp. They don't set those prisoners free. I believe it's the, the Jewish people. When you take a life, it's really bad. I mean, it's bad enough, but it's really bad in their minds because you aren't just killing that person. You're killing every descendant that person may have ever had. And when you save a life, you're saving every descendant. Like when we, we did Defiance uh, several months ago and they talked about how many people we're alive today because of the work those men did. And it's so funny because also in, in Hebrews 10 here, it talks about Abraham. From one man and one woman, God took an oath. I will bless you and multiply your descendants beyond number. Abraham never saw it. But God did what he promised. And that's the hope that is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. That Jewish maxim that you're referring to is based on the teaching that they derive from the, the occasion when Cain killed Abel. And for all the years that would follow, they said it's it's not just that Cain killed Abel. Cain killed an entire world that would have descended from Abel. And so in that way, every human being is a potential world unto themselves. So when you save a life, you save an entire world. When you take a life, it is as though you've killed an entire world. And that requires something very close to an eternal perspective. I heard Dallas Willard's daughter in an, in an interview one time. She said, told this cute story about him. And she goes, you know, he just, he always had eternity in the corner of his eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to grow up and be like that. Abraham never got to see the good that was promised to him. And yet he was called the friend of God. And so somehow he was able to lean into the prospect that maybe all this stuff is true. Even though I never get to receive it. It's only, I don't know trial and error sorts of thought experiments that I can, I can use to quell down that angry voice. The, the one that is really ranty with God demanding an audience, you know, I, I will have my satisfaction, right? <laughs> Even if I don't get what I want, I at least want an answer. You know, I want to be heard. Yeah, that would be nice. 
Can I can I get a sign upon delivery receipt, please? Like just just confirmation <laughs> that the mail made it to you, right? Or did my prayer just bounce off the ceiling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the primary virtues of the faith that we espouse, faith and hope and love, they're all things that you do without any guarantee. Which is to say, each one of those activities is a gamble. And they're called virtues because there's something that you do. And so faith, anytime you sit in a chair, you've placed your faith in it. You have gambled that it will hold you up and won't collapse beneath your weight. Hope, same thing. You act in a certain direction without having any surety that it's going to pan out. And love, God bless, is love a murderous gamble to give to somebody. I mean, it's, it's a kind of lunacy that we get married. You know? <laughs> right? Like, Golly, you've really changed your life to a person. And there's so many chapters that are unknown to everybody. It's undiscoverable until you get to those occasions, what kind of person they're going to become. And you've made the vow to that future unknown as well. Mm. Love is a crazy gamble. It's, it's insane. Like, it's sheer lunacy. It's not even a gamble. Because you know the shit's coming. Mm, yeah. Like there's no, there's no marriage. I, I, when I was working in the emergency department, I remember seeing this old guy coming in and he's in the throes of dementia, fighting us, yelling at us, cursing at us. And his wife's just there. She's like, calm down, dear. Calm down, dear. And I just, I heard this voice in my head that said, this mm. is the worst. We say for better mm -hmm. or for worse, this is the worst. But in every marriage, in every relationship, when you love somebody, there's going to be the worst. It's not all better. Yeah, really good point. I mean, the reason people lose their lives gambling is because there's some margin where the dice land exactly how they want or the roulette table or whatever, and they get everything in an instant and nothing bad happens. You know, it never goes that way in love ever. There's always an awful lot of blood in that exchange. It's, uh, it's very conflicting to worship a God that has arranged everything that way. And there are days where I don't believe it. Just empirically, it's it's difficult. Mm -mm, no, it's impossible to relax in the statement. He's good, and this is okay, and everything's going to be fine. It's it's easy to settle into a, a nihilistic universe where nothing has any meaning, and you just wring out whatever pleasures you can. So, there are times where the the last the last fallback position that I have in my heart. If I don't believe in God, like truly, if somebody was going to x-ray my soul, they would not find that conviction taking up much residence in me. When that happens, the, the best thing that I can do sometimes is to worship the God that should exist. Because in the history of the world, there really is no better story than ours. When it comes to how things should go, to have a God that would lovingly create a, create a place, give us the autonomy to ruin it because he respects our moral agency that much and doesn't want us to be mere automatons. And then to try to course correct everything would inhabit it himself and subject himself to the same, all the same pains, all the same heartaches breathe the air that he first breathed into existence to become the kind of creature that would grow in strength and wisdom and to die in that space. Like you're saying, he became subject to the curse as well. And to do all of that in such a way that it still requires our active participation to be partners with him in the story of redeeming the world. Right. And bringing the fullness of life back to this place that even now it's still not a thing that he will put on autopilot 
we still have to partner with them to see the story into fruition. Like if, if none of that is true, it really should be. Mm. And if there is any scenario, if there, if, if it is the case that I have been thoroughly deceived and we are just stardust enjoying consciousness for a time and then eventually going back into oblivion. If that is the actual fact of the universe, it would still be the case that our God and that story would be the best of all possible worlds. And the only thing worth hanging your hat on as a place to hope. So even when I don't believe it, sometimes faith is acting like I do and hoping that I will again. And loving somebody that I very much want to be real. Mm. I might be furious with him and I might wish really hard that I could slap him in the face. And I also don't want to give up on him. Right. I want this pretty bad. But there's still that kernel, that grain, that faith of a mustard seed that still recognizes even though all this shit is true, I still can't live without you. And that, I hope, is enough. We do have the good fortune of having been born into a really good anthology of greats that have gone before us, left trails of ink all the way to the throne room. So yeah, this this excerpt from the Screwtape Letters, I'm sure... Most of your audience is familiar. We've got C.S. Lewis writing a book where he's pretending to be the supervising demon. You know, this is a demon high up on the hierarchy in hell. And he's he's giving something of a training curriculum to his apprentice demon, Wormwood. So screw tape, the the mentor demon, writes to Wormwood. He says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. That's that mustard seed of faith, right? Even though everything I see, everything I feel, everything I hear, Tells me that I'm alone, that life's up to me. This battle and suffering is going to go on forever. And then to listen to worship music, to cry our faces off our faces. Because we know that's in the core of our being, in a part of us that we can't even verbalize or know or understand, we know it's true. And Jesus experienced it. God, why have you forsaken me? We have not, and again, Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who is unsympathetic. He has gone through every suffering we have gone through. And so that's that's that rock, right? Going back to that rock idea of where where we find an anchor in our time of suffering. Because honestly, even just doing it because we're like, oh, other people need us. It's not enough. But to say, Jesus, this fucking sucks. <laughs> this hurts. I don't want to do this. I'm mad at you. So that idea, sometimes the best prayer I've found is to just say, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, catch my heart. Jesus, show me a crack. Show me a... Whaler, you you described it like the door isn't open, but it's not completely shut either. It's like just a crack of light. That's all that I need. Because we know that dawn is coming. Jacob wrestled with the angel. He left marked. He would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. When you talk about a dark night of the soul, it's easy to do that, to consider that and how difficult it is. But, you know, 
you know the sun's going to rise eventually, but they don't have a clock to know when. How long must that night have been? But he walked out of there with a new identity and a new blessing. And the men of Easy Company walked out of there changed. They walked out of that interaction at the, the concentration camp where they saw the horrors that you can't even really describe. There's no words for what the Jewish people have gone through because they were God's chosen people. And as we get inherited into their promise, as the wild olive branches that are being grafted into the, 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 the root, the root of Jesse, we were grafted into Jesus. What makes, it, what makes us think our lives are going to be any different? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've received some, some difficult news recently. It's been a few years of hardship, and then it just came to alarming clarity. I've been trying, not doing well with it yet, but I've, I've been trying to lean into the master's words. He says that in this world, you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. I've gotten really good at feeling and being fully aware of the trouble part. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could do master classes on that. I am not so conversant with the peace part. That's not a lot of my walk around life. If I'm going to be his student, if I'm going to be anything like him, I need to become at least decent at that. Cause he was, apparently he was really good at it. He, he had a very difficult time getting away from people because he was just so blasted attractive, always magnetic to people. Mm. He was exuding life everywhere he went. Another thing I learned from Willard, you know, he said that when he was a young pastor, he realized he spent so much energy trying to get people to come to the things, the church service, the function, the, the study. And he was, he was gob, gobsmacked when he looked at Jesus and saw he had to work to get away from people. Mm. You had people literally tearing apart roofs of houses to get to where he was. And it kind of inverts the script when pastors will guilt trip their people for not being more consistent attenders. You know, it's like, well, what are you giving them to attend? Yeah. Jesus didn't have to preach that sermon ever. And we're supposed to be like him in that way. So I'm, I'm leaning in that direction and I, I like the way that you're reframing it because maybe it's the case. Maybe there are times where the best rendition faithfulness gets from us is a kind of righteous anger in God's direction. The thing that we're contending with is wrong. Right. And like the easy company, they have to see a world that is a lot bigger than they knew. And there's darkness then that is worse than the one that they've been carrying. And it's counterintuitive, I know, but somehow that incentivizes their engagement again. That reignites the valor and the courage in their heart. And it's not just a man, they've got it worse than me. I guess I can pick it up and do it again. It's like, no, there's there's purpose to this. There is significance to the way that we suffer and the kind of light that we become. Only in those those dire wakes that we pass through. I do not like it. I would not have written it this way. Okay, I got to get past that corner. How do we make the best we can with what we got? It does, it does help an awful lot when you have good friends along the way. Abel and, and uh, gracious conversation partners. Men that know how to commiserate with you. If they haven't been through it exactly, they've been in something parallel. And even if they're patently ignorant of what you're suffering, they still lean in your direction and want to hurt with you. Adina has uh, an amazing ancestor. Her great, great, great grandmother, Anna Irvine, she said that 
a cup of sorrows shared is only half a cup. Hmm. I appreciate you being willing to share the cup with me. Yes, sir. It's uh, and that this is what from the front side of the tapestry. <laughs> when you get to see it, you can't go through Bastogne just thinking there's a concentration camp out there who needs me. That won't get it through you. Your brothers in the foxhole will. It's only when you get when you free the captives, when you set the prisoners free. When you feed the hungry, when you do all those things, that's when you can look back and say, you know what? Going through Bastogne was worth it mm. so that I could be here. When I came home, because when it, it, part of my story is in 2012, I went to church and I heard God tell me, I'm so glad you're home and kind of shifted my entire few decades of, pre, of previous existence into something new and transformative. Several months later, I started a small group for men who have, who, are, who have gone through divorce or were separated because we understand different things. We go through different things and I wanted to create a safe space for sort of like people who have been through a similar situation, people in the same company, right? We're doing the military thing. It's like, this is a company of men who have gone through this. And one of my friends, uh, he's a friend now. He was, <laughs> he was a stranger the first night he showed up. But he and his wife had separated. They were going, the lawyers sent, setting up uh, divorce paperwork. Several months later, they changed their minds. Their marriage is restored. He has two, they were young boys. They're probably teenagers now. And I thought, you know what? If I had to go through what I did so that he didn't, that makes it worth it to me. So this has been Paul McDonald and Whaler Giles talking about Band of Brothers, why we fight. I normally say, I hope you enjoy it, but this is not really being an enjoyable one, but I hope that you got something out of this conversation because Whaler and I have given you something. We've given you a piece of ourselves in this conversation. So I do hope you come back next week when we talk about points because it is much lighter, much more enjoyable, uh, <laughs> tears of a different kind from that conversation. So uh, please join us next week here on the Men at the Movies podcast. Something inside has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be? Who am I to be?